0: Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and join me in the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 1 is where we are going to begin. So you can turn to Psalm chapter 1. We're starting our series, The Summer Through the Psalms. If you were just to turn through your Bible, just kind of set your Bible in front of a fan and let it just turn the pages for you, you would see basically two types of, of script, two types of wording and letters and the way that they're organized into paragraphs. One is the normal uh, prose um, narrative, just one thing to the next. And that's a great majority of the Bible. The other is poetry. It's singing. And you can see the, even in Psalm one, if you're turned there, the words are kind of bouncing around. They're not all in one place. they move into stanzas they move for effect and for emphasis music poetry singing is all over the bible i love singing i love music and apparently the authors of scripture do as well if you were to go all the way back to moses crossing the red sea after he finishes crossing the Red Sea and looks behind him and sees that all of his foes have been vanquished, what does he do? He sings. Exodus 15, he sings. He turns to his sister and says, we have to sing. And he sings. I think it gives us a clue as to why singing. Why do we sing? Why don't we just speak? Why don't we just talk to each other? Why do we sing? Because some things are too great and too grand to speak about them. They have to be sung. And so when Moses uh, crosses the Red Sea and sees that God has won the day, he cannot speak and say, God has won the day. He must sing. And he does. Sometimes you find music showing up in the weirdest of places, in Judges, after two people, Deborah and Barak, have slaughtered a people group. They've just massacred a people group that God was against. They were enemies of God, and God called Deborah and Barak to go and slaughter these people. And after they slaughter them, they they sing a song, of all times to sing a song. I mean, I understand happy birthday, but right after you've massacred a people group, they sing a song. First Samuel chapter two, Hannah cries out in song. Sometimes it's over celebratory matters where you cannot hold it in. Sometimes it's over the fact that you just accomplished an amazing work that God had called you to do. And you're singing because you cannot contain your excitement. And sometimes you are singing because you cannot contain your sorrow. Hannah sings. She cries out in song. She's been praying and she sings. And then she sings again when the Lord answers her prayer and gives her a son not just in the Old Testament. We see singing and music and poetry in the New Testament. Mary sings her Magnificat. There are so many examples of poetry everywhere in the Bible. But the book of Psalms obviously is the book that contains the most amount of poetry. It's one giant book of songs. In fact, the name Psalms is actually, it comes from a Greek word that means plucking strings. So it's a collection of Poems that are meant to be sung, that are meant to be accompanied by music, and you are to sing them. As I was thinking about where to start in our study through the Psalms, and we're going to study all the way up until September, so we're going to take a a good couple months to study the Psalms, some of our favorite ones, some of the ones that come to mind Psalm 23, Psalm 62, Psalm 103, different Psalms like that. It's going to be a blessed time, Lord willing. And some of the other brothers here at this church will be preaching and bringing the word to our souls. But as I thought about how we could begin this series, I think it'd be good to give a little bit of an introductory introductory matters to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is written some 3,000 years ago. It is the largest book in the Bible containing 150 chapters. The second largest book, chapter-wise... Is Isaiah with 66 chapters. So uh, a distant second as far as the volume of words and of ink spilled. Psalm 119 is the largest chapter in the Bible. It is a unit of 176 verses compiled into one chapter. It contains more verses than many short books of the Bible. Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the Bible, containing only two verses. So you have the longest chapter in the Bible and the shortest chapter in the Bible found in the book of Psalms. Psalm 117 is also the middle chapter of the Bible, the very center of the 1,189 chapters found in the Scriptures. So if you were to say, what is the middle chapter of all of the chapters in the Scriptures, it would be Psalm 117. Psalm 118, verse 8, is the absolute center of the 31,173 verses contained in Scripture. So Psalm 117 is the exact middle, as far as chapters are concerned. Psalm 118, verse 8, is the absolute center of the Bible. Who wrote the book of Psalms? One of the reasons why I love the book of Psalms is it was written by so many different authors with so many different backgrounds, with so many different desires. Many people would say, well, David wrote the book. And yes, he wrote a lot of the Psalms, almost half of the Psalms. 73 of the Psalms are attributed to David and possibly two more. So maybe 75, maybe um, half. Some are by Solomon, some are by Asaph, some are by the sons of Korah. Some are even by Moses. One is by Moses. Psalm 90, the oldest psalm, is written by Moses. Psalm 89 is written by Ethan. And that's where our son gets his name. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known God's faithfulness to all generations. That's the prayer of my heart for our son. And so I figured we could name him after the man who wrote that that song. Because there were so many different authors, the dating of this book spans from the first psalm, which was undoubtedly and undisputedly Psalm 90. That was the first historically written psalm. Psalm 90 written by Moses. It was probably written around 1410 B.C., towards the end of the wilderness wanderings. So about 1400 B.C., Moses writes a song, and we have it in our Bibles as Psalm 90. The last psalm composed historically... Um, chronologically would be psalm 126 it's thought to have been written after the time of israel's babylonian exile during their return more than likely ezra wrote it and so it would have been written around 400 bc about 430 bc so that means this book spans a thousand years of time so not only numerous authors but An amazing span of history that people are going through, which again lends itself to the humanity of this book. Ask any number of believers what their favorite book of the Bible is, and I think many would say it's the book of Psalms. Why? Because they relate to it. You can find every human emotion here. You can find people saying, I'm at peace, I'm at rest, God is good, God is great. And you can find people in the Psalms saying, is God good? Is he great? Is he even there? Is he even in control? I think that's why we are drawn to the humanity of these poems. The book of Psalms is broken down into five books. I don't know if you've seen the breakdown, but there's five books in the book of Psalms and they actually mirror, why why five books? Why do we have these five different subdivisions of the book of Psalms? Um, They are intended to mirror the five books of Moses. The first book of Psalms is supposed to mirror Genesis. The second book in the book of Psalms is supposed to mirror Exodus, so on and so forth. After teaching from the Torah, there is supposed to be expressive instruction from the singing of the Psalms. That's a little bit of background for the Psalms. Obviously, they were set to music as the name would tell us, but not the kind of music we think of. Um, I, so, so many people say, oh, I can't wait till we get to heaven and there's going to be this style of music or this this is, you know, like our culture, our society has found out the style of music that's going to be in heaven. I don't think we even know what kind of music's going to be in heaven. But if you were to go back and listen to the kind of music that these songs were set to, I think you would not understand what was going on. It's a completely different style of music. Even our chromatic scale, the way that we have mathematically understood music, really didn't start until the time of Bach. So you have completely different foreign understanding of music altogether. And that's for our advantage. And this is something that I want you to understand. These songs were made to rhyme. These are poems that are made to rhyme. But they're not made to rhyme in the way that we think rhyming is supposed to happen. We think rhyme, we instantly think of two words that sound the same, phonetically or phonically rhyming. The beauty of what God did, and the greatest understatement in the world is God knew what he was doing when he wrote these psalms. But the beauty of what God did in writing the psalms the way that he did if he had written it to rhyme only in the Hebrew language, then it wouldn't make sense to us. The rhyme scheme, the beauty of it, wouldn't make sense to English-speaking people. And that won't work in God's economy because God demands that every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group be able to sing these songs. So he rhymes it in a very different way. It's a unique way. It's what we would call Hebrew parallelism. Don't let that frighten you. All it means is... There is a thought, and then the next line will add on to that thought, will maximize the thought, will expound upon the thought, or will be the exact opposite of the thought. It's a logical rhyming. It's not a uh, phonetic rhyming. It's a logical rhyming. And I love the way that even in what we're going to look at today, we will see many cases of Hebrew parallelism parallelism in Psalm chapter 1. It's just two people, the wicked, the righteous. And then there is so much logical uh, rhyming within the book, within the chapter. Lastly, before we dive into this exact psalm, music itself and poetry itself, this is where we have to just take a step back. If I wanted to learn about how to change the oil in my car, which I know nothing about. Um, whenever my car makes weird noises, I pull over to the side of the road, pop the hood, look in it to see if something's just like blinking a red light. And maybe if it is, I can press a button that says stop blinking and we'll be good. And I look and I go, looks good to me. Just still looks dirty under there. I don't know what it's supposed to look like. Put it down. Maybe that'll fix it. And that's the way that I deal with cars. So if I wanted to read a book, maybe how to take care of cars for dummies, I wouldn't expect to open it and see poems, Right look under the hood of your car or else you won't be able to drive very far. I wouldn't expect to have Dr. Seuss instructing my heart and my mind on how to take care of my car. And this is where we have to back up a little bit because the music in the Bible is the exact opposite. The music in the Bible, poems in the scriptures, are intended to teach. They are intended to instruct our hearts. They are intended to be an expression of our hearts Absolutely. But they are also intended to be an impression to our hearts, truth imparted to our hearts. So let me say it this way. Poems are different than prose, different than narrative. So there is an expression that's happening in these songs that is different than any other place in the scriptures as far as prose would be concerned. But they are designed to teach. So let me say it this way. Let me pull these two avenues, these two issues together. We've got expression of the Psalms and we've got impression, instruction of the Psalms meant to teach us. And here's what I would say. If you are only reading the Psalms for expression, if you're only reading the Psalms because you want to express your heart to the Lord and you feel that your heart is being expressed to the Lord in a certain psalm. If you only read the psalms for expression, I don't think you're reading the psalms in their completion for what they're meant to be read as. You have to get instruction and you're missing that. Likewise, if you only read the psalms for doctrine or teaching or instruction, you're missing it because it's not just narrative, it's not just prose. It is poetry, So, if you only read it very stoically and you just read, okay, this is what the psalmist is saying and what can I learn and move on, you miss. This is a song. And it's meant to express what's going on in your soul and the innermost parts of your being. So, we have to read these psalms with both aspects the expression before the Lord, the human emotion before the Lord, and the truth from God to our hearts. So, with that being said, as a little bit of an introduction, Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, start at the very beginning, a very good place to start, as some would say. Psalm chapter 1 actually sets the tone for the entire book. Every single commentator out there says Psalm 1 is the heading for which all the other 149 Psalms would take their cue from. Spurgeon said that Psalm 1 is the text from which the rest of the Psalms is just a sermon. Thomas Watson, a Puritan author, said it may well be called a Christian's guide for it discovers the quicksand where the wicked sink down to perdition and the firm ground on which the saints tread to glory. Psalm one is a wisdom psalm. It was either written by David or Solomon, and it lays out very explicitly that there are only two paths, only two ways, only two roads, the righteous road that leads to blessing and to eternal life and the wicked road that leads to um, cursing and eternal hell. And so the question that I want to ask our hearts this morning as we dive in, and you can see it on your outline or you can see it on your notes in your bulletin, who is the one that God looks to and blesses? Who is the one that God looks to and showers blessing upon? We're going to answer that in two different ways based on this psalm, and then we're going to qualify. We need to make sure that we clarify and qualify the word blesses. How does God bless? Does he bless with abundant prosperity as far as financial riches are concerned? How does he bless? We're going to look at the two ways that we can become the person that God would bless, and then we're going to define what that blessing looks like. We're going to take our cue from the first verse, and literally it's the first word. It's actually the first two words in the Hebrew. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. How blessed. Literally in the Hebrew, it's blessed, very blessed. That's why my Bible says, how blessed. This man is blessed beyond measure, uh, the word there, you might remember, it's actually the name of one of the twelve uh, sons of Jacob. It's Asher. And Asher just means happy. And so the, the word in the verb sense, being blessed and very blessed by God, is Eshrei. And a commentator says, The sages reserve the exclamation Eshrei, for people who experience life as the Creator intended. The man who is blessed by God is a man who is experiencing life as the Creator intended. I love that definition for blessed. So how can we be this man who is blessed, very blessed? You could translate it the blessednesses. It's in the plural. So many blessednesses that just flow from the hand of God. I want to be this man. So how can we be this person? How can we be the man or woman that God would bless? Well, first... And the psalmist puts this in the negative, and I find that very interesting. Uh, It's as if somebody were saying, okay, how can I be the one that God blesses and God says, first, don't do this? I would say, let's start with the positive, right? Hey, this is what you're supposed to do. Do this, do this, do this. And by the way, you shouldn't do this. Not so in God's word. God's word is clear. If you want to be blessed by God, you cannot and you must not and will not do This first aspect, if I can just put this into a point for our outline, I would say this. Number one, if you want to be blessed by God, you must resolve to live differently than the world. You must resolve to live differently than the world. Live differently, think differently, don't let their philosophies influence how you think. Have different goals, have different hopes and dreams. Have different everything. Your life is going to be radically different than that of the world. And that's why the psalmist says the blessed man is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he stand in the path of sinners, nor does he sit in the seat of scoffers. This is beautiful Hebrew parallelism. This is what we'd call progressive parallelism. It's getting worse. You can see it's getting worse. This man's involvement and intimacy with wickedness is getting worse. First, we're not supposed to walk in the counsel of the wicked. We're not supposed to walk along a path in the counsel of wicked people. And then it would get worse in progressive parallelism. You're not just walking. Now you stop and you stand and you talk with the people that you shouldn't be even walking next to. And then not only do you now stand next to the people you shouldn't have been walking next to in the first place, but now you sit with them and you hear their teaching and you become one of them. Progressive parallelism, it's growing, it's expounding, it's becoming worse. I think that there is an aspect of that growing and that degeneration, that cycle of wickedness that just grows. Um, We sin by our nature. And if we're not fighting against it, we're just going to start walking with wicked people, standing with sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. Notice the actions are not just progressive, walking, standing, sitting, but the people are progressive in their wickedness. Not supposed to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Uh, My Bible translates that word ungodly more often than not. Your Bibles might have ungodly. Wicked, ungodly. These are people who are known for what they don't do. They're not oriented towards God. They're ungodly. So they're known for what they don't do. Sinners, the second group of people are known for what they do. They hate God and they do what God hates. And then scoffers, the third group of people actually mock God's way. They actually Not only do what God hates, but they encourage others to do it as well and say, God, will you even judge? No, you're not going to. I'm fine with this. By the way, if you know the Psalms and you know them very well, you will know the mind of a lot of the New Testament authors. Uh, Paul, for instance, Romans chapter one is just an outworking of Psalm chapter one. Romans chapter 1, if you remember the progression that Paul gives, first, these people deny that there's a creator. They're not, obviously, oriented towards God. Then they start walking into sin, and then as they start practicing sin, the cycle of sin gets worse and worse and worse, until finally, what are they doing? They're encouraging others to do the exact same thing and giving hearty approval, Paul says, to others to do the exact same thing. If you know the Psalms, you will know a lot of what the New Testament writers are thinking. They allude to the Psalms a lot. And Paul says in Romans 1, these people are not going to be blessed by God. Instead, God will hand them over, turn them over to their own wickedness and devices. If we are to be people that are blessed by God, we must not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. The psalmist will say elsewhere in Psalm 119, verse 104, From your precepts, O Lord, I gain understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. This is not just an indifference to things that are opposed to God. This is not just looking at other paths and other ways and saying, yeah, it's not for me. Paul says he hates. Or the psalmist says he hates every false way. And Paul will say the exact same thing in the book of Romans. Turn from every evil wickedness. Psalm 119, verse 128. I esteem right all of your precepts concerning everything, and I hate every false way. I hate every false way. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not proceed in the way of evil men. Don't go that way. Resolve to live radically different. The world is constantly preaching at us through advertisements, through movies, through media, through everything that we see. Every second of every day, the world is preaching to you that you should live the way the world lives. And if you don't, you are a lunatic. And the psalmist says, if you decide to buy into their sermons and you decide to live according to their ways and live according to their goals and their desires and let your affections be their affections, you will not be blessed. And in fact, you will walk down a path to becoming a scoffer. Obviously, this does not mean that you never interact with nonbelievers. That would be logically impossible when God has called us to interact with nonbelievers and share the gospel with them. Paul even says that. In Corinthians, he's he's saying, look, I'm not telling you to be um, not associated with nonbelievers because if I told you to do that, you'd have to come out of the world. So you're in the world for a reason. We're here for a reason to share the gospel with those around us. But what this does mean for our hearts is that we don't let their philosophies become ours. We don't stay in a company of nonbelievers and listen to their counsel and heed their advice and live according to their philosophies. We always go on the offensive. It's not that we are offensive, but we always go on offense to say, please turn to Jesus because the way you are living right now leads to death. It leads to death. Here's the bottom line, and I think that John Calvin says it best. No man can be duly animated to the fear and service of God and to the study of his law until he is firmly persuaded that all the ungodly are miserable and that they who do not withdraw from their company shall be involved in the same destruction with them. Uh, This is the battle. I think Brian would testify to this. I think Bruce would testify to this. This is the battle of youth ministry. Young men and women who hear, if you live according to God's word, you will be blessed, and if you don't, you will be cursed, and God will judge, and it will not go well with you. And all of their friends say, "Nah, it's not true. Look at me. I don't care about God. I just got a Mustang for graduation. I don't care about God, and look at how he blessed me. I don't care about God. I get to do whatever I want. Youth ministry is all about firmly persuading young men and women that the unrighteous are truly miserable. Sometimes it shows itself earlier, but we have to believe that. We have to be firmly persuaded and resolve and purpose to live differently. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. You know it. Do not be conformed to this world. Literally, it's the idea of being pressed into a mold. The world has a mold and they say, you should look like this. We're going to do everything we can to press you into this mold. And Paul says, do not be pressed into that mold. Stay outside of it. Don't go near to it and don't let anything press you into the mold. But instead, what does he say? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are we transformed by the renewing of our mind? It's meditation upon the word. And that's exactly where Paul goes In Romans chapter 12, I think because that's exactly where the psalmist goes in Psalm chapter 1. So number one, if we are to be blessed by God, we must resolve to live differently. Purpose to live differently, think differently, feel differently, act differently. Be different in in every single way we possibly can. Number two, if we are to be blessed... Not only do we have to purpose to live differently than the world, but here's the positive. Verse 2, the positive. But, instead of these things, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Here's the positive. First the negative, now the positive. And I would say it this way. If you want to be blessed by God, you must delight in his word. If you want to be blessed by God, you must delight in his word. His delight is in the law of the Lord, Notice the word delight and the word but. Instead of this, his delight is in this. So what does that say about the wicked people? I think we can put that word delight up in verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counts of the wicked, who delight in wickedness. They don't stand in the path of sinners, sinners who delight in sinning. Don't sit in the seat of scoffers, scoffers who delight in mocking God. But instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. You see, we don't sin out of duty. We don't sin because somebody's saying you must sin. We sin because we think it offers us satisfaction. We sin because we delight in what we believe the sin is going to promise and give to us. And sin always lies. And therefore, as we live in sin and we think we're going to delight in the product of our sin, we end up realizing that the Proverbs are true. Sin pleases for a season, and in the end it brings forth death. Instead, we should be delighting in superior affections that will destroy affections that we have for sin. It's all about our affections. It's all about our delight. What do we love? And this man loves and delights in the law of the Lord. Now, that's where a lot of people say, Okay, excuse me, Patrick. I don't really love the law. I don't love laws, I don't love rules, I don't like black and white, I don't like boundaries, I don't like fences, I don't like barriers. I cannot take away the fact that the Bible is filled with do this and don't do this. The Bible is filled with that. We have to be honest. God says do and don't, do and don't, all over the pages of Scripture. But I think I can try and help us here with this word law and the purpose of it and how we can delight in it. It's not delight in rules. It's not delight in legalism, obviously. And it's not delight in yes, no, uh, do, do not. That's not what this is saying. The word there for law, here's how I want to help you out. The word there for law is Torah. You know that word. It's in the noun here. It's a, uh, it's a thing. But when you turn that word, Torah, into a verb, when you turn it into a verb, usually, more often than not, you will find that word translated in your Bible as directing or guiding. Um, Sometimes, more often than not, we think of God's word just as a a policeman, right? You're speeding, you're going to get a ticket, boom, you're done, stop. Uh, Don't find too much delight in that. Uh, If you are righteous, obviously you can delight in it, but you don't find too much delight. How are you supposed to delight in getting tickets? This is where I think understanding the point of this word, guiding, directing, here's the best way that I can explain it. Um, When I was in high school, I went to a pitching coach, um, a guy by the name of Frank Pastore. Some of you remember who he is. Um, He's with the Lord now, Uh, but he was my pitching coach for a little while, and um, you go there to be told how terrible you are as a pitcher. I mean, that's the bottom line. You give him money to be told, you're doing everything wrong. And you don't say, excuse me, sir, where did you get the gall to do that? Excuse me, what? You're, you're paying him money and you long to hear from him, this is how to do things better. I will never forget my experience with him. My first experience with him, um, he had a, a catcher and he just stood and watched me. and said, pitch. So I started pitching and he said, he would just come around and tweak little things. And he would say, let me see how you're holding Move your index finger over half an inch, you'll get a mile an hour faster on your fastball. What? Okay. Um, where are you on the rubber? Back up a little bit, you'll get a mile an hour faster on your fastball. Okay. Uh, pull your glove in, do all these, all these different, just little tweaks, and before you know it, it's 10 miles an hour faster on my fastball. And I love him for telling me how bad I am. Why? Because he's guiding and directing me to make me better, to help me succeed and do well. That's what God's word is like for us. That's the way you can begin to delight in it. When you know you're not coming to it just to be a slap on the hand, don't do that and get better, hurry up, stop being so bad at everything. If that's your view of God's word, you cannot delight in it unless you're incredibly masochistic. The way that we delight in God's word is when we realize we come to it for guidance. It will help us succeed. It will direct us and guide us and enable us to live a life that God is glorified with and that we are blessed in. Again, I can't take away the do's or don'ts in the Bible because there are a lot there, but what I can do is tell you that in the context of God giving us directions, which would result in my blessing, and I realize this, and I know it's for my good, then I can delight in it because I know God's working for my good. So many people think God's just up in heaven going... How can I make a rule that will just ruin their fun? If we think that, we will never delight in God's word. But this man, the man who is blessed, delights in God's word. It's really not that hard to tell what you delight in. It's what you talk about. It's what you live for. It's what you spend your money on. It's what you spend your time thinking about. If I were to ask you, do you delight in food? Um, I think that most of us would say yes, and I could prove to you that I know you delight in food to a certain degree because you ate, maybe this morning, maybe last night. You know who doesn't delight in food? Here's the person who doesn't delight in food, a dead person. They haven't delighted in food in a long time. Why? Because they're dead. They can't intake it. They don't go to it. They cannot process it. So here's the question for our souls. Is God's word your craving? Do you delight in it above all things? Not only will we delight in the law of the Lord when we understand what the law is there for, but we will also delight in the law of the Lord when we understand who's writing it. Uh, we received a, a card in the mail from the fire when you When you see that, I don't know if you've gotten a, a letter in the mail from the fire horizons. When you see that, you smile instantly. You open your mailbox, what do we get? Junk mail, junk mail. A letter from the fire horizons. Yes, I cannot wait to open it. It's just jam-packed with encouragement. It just bleeds over your soul. Encouragement, love, grace. If I get a letter from somebody I don't know, I'm not excited about it. Who is this? I don't know who this is. Here, Hannah, you open it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what this is about. Let me, let me pose it this way. Could it be that the reason why you are not delighting in God's Word and spending significant amount of time with Him every day Look at the psalmist. He delights in the love of the Lord day and night. Could it be that the reason why you have an aversion to diving into the word of God is because you're not reconciled with the one who wrote it? You don't know the expectation of receiving a love letter from somebody who loves you, who knows you, who wants to encourage you. You're coming to God's word and you're saying, what do you have to say to me now? Is this junk mail? Can somebody else read this? If we know that God loves us with an undying, passionate love and has nothing but grace to offer to us, then we will delight in the love letter that he gave to us. We will delight in it. How can you practically increase your delight in God's word? Write down Jeremiah 15, verse 16. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy, and the delight of my heart. How can you grow in your delighting in God's word? Dive into God's word. Dive into his word. Martin Luther says, the Bible is a remarkable fountain. The more one draws and drinks from it, the more it stimulates thirst. It's like salt water. The more you drink of it, the thirstier you get. But it's unlike salt water that in every time you drink of it, it quenches your thirst. If you can honestly assess this morning, I don't delight in the word of God the way I know I should. I I plead with you tomorrow morning, tonight, this afternoon, get before the Lord by yourself on on your hands and knees and cry out to him and say, I want to delight in this letter. Maybe it's because I don't understand you are giving me these rules and regulations for guidance, for direction, for my good. Maybe it's because I don't understand who's writing this letter. But I want to love this book. So God, I'm going to sit in this book and start reading it until I start loving it. You just have to do that sometimes. And it's not like a one-time deal. It's not like, oh, I love God's word today. This is great. I never have to fight to love God's word again. I always say, don't steal the joy of heaven from me. If you think with an expectation that somehow you're going to get to a place in this life where you never have to fight to find joy in who God is for you in his word, you're stealing the, heaven from, or the joy from heaven. You're stealing the joy of one day never having to fight that fight ever again. That's going to happen, but not in this life. Not in this life. This man meditates on his law day and night. What picture comes to mind when you think of meditating, when you hear the word meditate? Is it just like some tall You know, skinny, 70-pound girl on a beach somewhere, on a pier, in white clothing, crisscross applesauce with uh, fingers like this. You have a little bubble above her head, thought bubble with absolutely nothing going on in it. Um, If that's what comes to your mind, uh, we're buying into the culture's understanding of meditating. That's the exact opposite of meditation. The good news is you know exactly what meditation, biblical meditation, is not. Biblical meditation is filling that thought bubble with God's word. And again, I want to try and help you with the word meditate. Very, very interesting. When you find an animal in the Bible and you want to describe the animal making a sound, you say, there's a cow. Uh, We sing it uh, during Christmas. The cattle are lowing. That word translated lowing, That word is meditate. That word is meditate. The cattle are meditating, and we translate it, lowing. Um, You see this with lions. If you want to describe the lion growling, you say the the lion meditated. The lion is meditating. Um, It's also used, uh, interestingly enough, with pigeons. Um, There's just a flock of pigeons around our house that just decided to show up, and I think that they are abnormally loud. Um, I did not remember Bert and Ernie loving the pigeons that were this loud. These are loud pigeons. Uh, We don't need roosters. If you guys were thinking of getting us a rooster for Christmas, we're set because the pigeons, 4.15, wake us up in the morning. Um, Their sound, I don't know what you would call it, I think that the nice word would be cooing, They are not cooing whatsoever. They're hooting, they're hollering, they're yelling, they're screaming. But whatever they're doing, it would be translated in the Bible, and you find in the Bible, you find it in a couple different places, doves that are cooing, and it says that they're meditating. It's literally the word meditating, but we just translate it cooing because it makes no sense in our minds to have a bird meditating. But it instructs our hearts as to what this word is saying. What is meditation? It's murmuring, it's muttering. It's having in your mouth words that sometimes are audible to others, sometimes they're not. It's having the word of God. This is biblical meditation, having the word of God in your mouth at all times. You're you're saying it, you're speaking it. This is what we do with my daughter at the dinner table. Chelsea, say John 3:16. For God so loved that's meditating and then she smiles all the time. This little shy, nervous smile. That's meditation. Having the words of God in your mouth, and you're just chewing on them. And you're constantly replaying them over and over and over again in your head. This will bring clarity to Joshua chapter 1. You remember Joshua says, This book of the law shall not depart from your what? Mouth. It will not depart from your mouth, but you will meditate on it day and night. It's not, this book of the law shall not depart from the preachers, but you all need to meditate on it. It's, we all, it cannot depart from our mouths. It needs to constantly be in our mouths, on our lips, and meditating on it. So if you resolve to live differently than the world, and you delight in the word of God and chew, chew on it, meditate on it, even as Michael was saying this morning, uh, that the word of Christ is richly dwelling within you, um, most Commentators would say meditation lends itself to memorizing, and memorizing is a form of meditating. The Word of God is there on your lips. If you resolve to live differently than the world, and if you delight in God's Word, you will be blessed. Those are the two ways that we know from Psalm 1 we can be the man or woman that God will bless. But now we need to understand what this kind of blessing is. So point number three, what is this kind of blessing? Um, We can say it this way. Enjoy blessing from God and satisfaction in God. If you are this man who is not living like the world and delighting in the word of God, enjoy blessing from God and satisfaction in God. Verse three, this man will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in whatever he does. He prospers. This is where instantly there's a little bit of a um, just a grating on our ears when we hear prosper. He will prosper in whatever he does. Is this prosperity gospel? No, I would say it's actually gospel prosperity. I would say this is prosperity that flows out of a true understanding of who God is. And there are clues to point to the fact that preachers who would say uh, and preach the prosperity gospel that God just wants you to be healthy and wealthy and and wise and happy that that's all God wants for you. There's some clues in verse 3 that would say that is entirely not what this verse is saying. Let's look at some of these clues together. Um, first of all, these, this person is blessed and he's planted like a um, tree by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, And then whatever he does, he prospers. So this man, number one, is planted, or literally the word there is transplanted, Um, uprooted. God takes this person, pulls their roots out, takes the tree, and plants it somewhere else. And notice where this person is planted. This tree is planted in a place that needs channels of water. My Bible says streams of water. It's not like there's a raging river next to this tree. It's not like this is a garden. It's a glorious, beautiful place. It's channels or troughs or irrigation systems of water. So what is this telling us? This is telling us that God is planting us in desert places. God is taking us and planting us in desert places. And then he is um, cutting the troughs in the ground and pouring water into them so that we will be nourished. But it's not that we are in some beautiful, lush garden. So number one, the first way that we know this isn't prosperity gospel is because we are transplanted into a desert. And God has to cut streams, uh, irrigation canals of water, or else we would die. God has to do that work to cut those streams for us, or else we would not be able to have fruit. And that's really the second way that we know this isn't Uh, prosperity gospel. It yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Leaf doesn't wither even though it's supposed to because it's in a desert and it's getting sun all the time and no water, but God waters it through the irrigation system so its leaf doesn't wither even though it should. But it yields its fruit in its season, which means what? There's going to be seasons where you are going to struggle. There's going to be seasons that are not as prosperous or as far as bearing fruit are concerned. Its going to be difficult, dark seasons. I love that we've been studying Philippians because this is really what the birth of the church is all about. Acts chapter 16. This is the prosperity. Paul in prison with Silas and they're singing and they're praising God after they've been tortured and put into the stocks. That's not prosperity gospel. That's gospel prosperity. We have a reason to sing. We have a reason to find peace and have encouragement because even in the midst of a desert place, We know God is still going to take care of us. We know God's still going to take care of us. Again, in the words of Paul, who alludes to this understanding of whatever he does, he prospers. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know God works all things. He causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's what this verse is saying. That's what this verse is saying. Like a tree firmly planted, Yields its fruit, leaf doesn't wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. This is satisfaction in God when everything else is taken away. This is blessing from God, not in the form of money, not in the form of nice cars or big houses. This is blessing from God, primarily in the form of God takes care of you and will not let you go. Again, Romans chapter 8. What can separate us from all these things? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think Paul's stealing that from 4 and 5 and 6. I think it just alludes to it and is constantly plagiarizing it, which I think is great. Verse 4 The wicked are not so. The wicked are not like the righteous. Not only do they not delight in the word of God, not only do they not. Um, fight against or not only do they enjoy sin and not kick against it but they're also not so in the way that they will not be planted and irrigated and yield fruit and not wither and prosper that begs the question that verse verse 3 begs the question what about the wicked why should i be living in obedience before god does it really matter what about the wicked Wicked or not so, verse 4, they're like chaff which the wind drives away. That's just like the husk around the wheat. Uh, You would throw the wheat up with like a pitchfork, throw it up into the air, and the wind that would be coming through would take away the chaff and just blow it away, and the wheat, all the good part of the wheat would come down, fall down, and still be there. In fact, there's other pictures in Scripture that describe men and women and children gathering up the chaff and throwing it into a fire and letting it be burned away. They're just driven away. The wind drives them. Instead of being firmly planted, they just are blown away. Therefore, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, in God's judgment of them, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. So here is another Hebrew parallelism. First, we had the, the righteous man does not stand in the council, in the path, or in the seat of scoffers. And now here in verse 5, the sinners can't stand in the assembly of the righteous. Hebrew parallelism. Logic rhyming. Why? Why can they not stand? Verse 6 answers that. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That's not just knows as in intellectually understands. Remember, we've talked about that word knows before. You remember Genesis chapter 3, Adam knew his wife Eve. This is an intimate relationship. This is a connection together in a deep, deep form of relationship. God is with you. He knows the way of the righteous because it's his way. He's with you as you walk on the way. But he doesn't know the way of the wicked. And the way of the wicked will perish. It's very interesting, even in the Hebrew, there is, and there are times in the Hebrew where it does uh, kind of rhyme a little bit with uh, Hebrew words, and there are times when they play on Hebrew letters and the way that things are are, um, constructed, and and hopefully we'll go through that as we go through the Psalms, but even here in Psalm chapter 1, it's really kind of the A and Z of the Christian life, and I, I don't want to make too much of it because maybe it's not supposed to be made much of. But I do find it interesting that the first word in Psalm chapter 1 is Asher, begins with A, begins with Aleph in the Hebrew, um, the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is not Z, it's actually T, it's Tav. And the last word in Psalm chapter 1, the word perish, begins with that letter Tav. Again, I don't want to make too much of it, but I do think that this psalm, even regardless of that fact, I do think that this psalm is preaching, this is the whole of life. You have two options. You have two options. And that's the question to us this morning. And my question to you this morning is this, and I believe it comes straight from God's word. What path are you on? Maybe you see, I I believe I'm on the righteous path. But I have to abandon certain philosophies, certain ways of thinking. I haven't been firmly persuaded that the unrighteous are miserable. still struggling to figure that out. What do you have to abandon this morning? What do you have to embrace this morning? Psalm 1 is stationed at the beginning of the Psalms for a reason. Before we move on to any of the other Psalms that we're going to study, we have to make a choice. Are we going to live the way that God has commanded and desires for us to live? Or are we going to live according to our own devices, our own philosophies, our own worldly wisdom? Charles Spurgeon says it this way Walk with God, and you cannot mistake the road. You have an infallible wisdom to direct you, you have permanent love to comfort you, and you have eternal power to defend you. Brothers and sisters, if you are here this morning and you are wondering or thinking or questioning or wrestling with is God's way the best way? Can I kind of do a little grab bag take from some and not just live solely and with abandon for the Lord? Am I really? Can I, can I you know, have both feet in different camps? Can I do this? And you're wondering. Can I just plead with you? I can give you money back guarantee take it to the bank. If you live sold out for the Lord, in love with His Son, delighting in His Word, when you get to the end of your life, I promise you, you will never regret it. I promise you, you will never regret it. But you need to come to that decision yourself. My prayer is that Christ's Bible Church would be a place filled with trees firmly planted in the midst of a desert situation, And we say God is good and he will supply every need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. He'll take care of me. And to that end, we sing. To that end, we study. To that end, we express our gladness and our joy before God. And we are instructed by his word in this song this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that it is the firm foundation that we can delight in no matter what is going on around us. It is all that we need. It is all that we need to enable us to live rightly before you and be blessed by you. Oh, what more could you say to us than you've already said in your word? God, I pray for those in this room that might be wrestling, might be struggling. Is living for Jesus Christ alone and dying to myself really worth it? I pray that they would be reminded, even as we sing, the soul that on Jesus doth lean for repose, you will not desert to his foes. May we stand together and individually on your firm foundation. We pray it in your name. Let's stand together as we sing.